2: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com
0: Hey Dave. Yeah Randy? Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas.
1: You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, the founder of MoveOn.org, author of The Filter Bubble, and now founder of Upworthy.com, Eli Pariser.
3: I think the opportunity would be that cultural realities feel as real as the ground under people's feet, and the danger would be that cultural realities feel as real as the ground under people's feet.
1: Eli's trying to use media to make what's important popular rather than the other way around. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Lots of exciting things happening for us all on Team Human. We are initiating our third Thursday's program, although we might only do one on a third Thursday. Basically, it's Team Human Live, where we invite our guest and a studio audience to Uh, witness a live Team Human conversation and take part in it, and then we'll air it a week or so later. It's not quite live broadcast, but it's alive, and it's a step in that direction. We're doing one on June 21st at the Alchemist's Kitchen in New York City, a uh, way of Getting tickets or reservations to come should be on the teamhuman.fm website. Subscribers to Team Human, people who are currently subscribing through our Patreon, will be able to get in free with a discount code that we give you, but you will get in for free if you are a subscriber to Team Human. And we're really excited. We're going to have Mark Filippi as our guest. He's the guy that was really responsible for the section in my book, Present Shock, about the way that time really isn't generic, how we have different Uh, attitudes, approaches, ways of understanding the world, depending on what part of a lunar cycle we happen to be in. And it's not really as controversial as astrology. It's pretty simple and scientific that during different weeks of the moon cycle, we are dominated by different neurotransmitters. And if you know this, and you know how to ride those, uh, navigate those waves of neurochemistry, you can end up really... uh, I don't want to say being more productive, although for me, I'm always into productivity. Yes, I get more done. But you can also live in greater harmony with what's going on around you. I found it's it's super useful. And it's just a, a teeny peek at what it means to understand really all of reality that way as cyclical and as something that you can either kind of work with and learn how to navigate or pretend it isn't there and just live in a kind of a purely old-school, mechanistic, generic uh, understanding of, of the world and time and space, um, which is uh, not just less productive, but it's a whole lot less fun, and it uh, ends up thwarting a lot of your uh, more intuitive mechanisms. So I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation, a, a no-holds-barred conversation with Dr. Mark Filippi. Uh, this week, I don't know, I guess it's hitting everybody on different weeks, but so this week in our town, everybody is playing this Yanni Laurel uh, tape. And there's this sound, and people don't know whether it says Yanni or Laurel. And when you listen to it, you're supposed to then go, Oh, I hear Yanni, or Oh, I hear Laurel. 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 And I'm hearing a lot of people say that this thing, the fact that you can hear either Yanni or Laurel in this tape, uh, they're using it to argue for... Kind of a false equivalence between everything. So the idea is, well, if you can hear Yanni or Laurel when you listen to this sound, then when you watch a Donald Trump speech, you know, half of you are going to hear, oh, this guy is great and saving America. And the other half are going to hear, oh, he's a liar and he's terrible. And whichever you are, it doesn't matter um, because, well, half are going to think this and half are going to think that. And that's just the way it is. As if Everything is up for interpretation. It's some, you know, it's a postmodern uh, moral equivalence or something that everything is just how you hear it. And It's not. (laughs) There's things that are actually happening here. It's not just how you see it. Is that an apple tree or a pear tree? Well, I see apple tree. I see pear tree. That doesn't mean it's a pear tree. It's still one or the other. It's still one of them, unless it's some weird hybrid. There still is an objective reality of atoms and molecules and stuff going on. You can't just say, oh, you know, when I see... um, Uh, When I see, you know, white privilege or black repression, you might see white repression and black privilege. And that's just the way we see things. Isn't that all fine? No, it's not all fine. It's, It's not. There's an actual objective world. There are people who are repressed and you might feel oppressed, but it's not the same thing. Then from the other side, I'm looking at this same phenomenon in how we label stuff. So if you see an issue one way, you can create a label for it in order to brand your perspective. So um, Donald Trump, say, uh, he calls the fact that the FBI was concerned about Russian infiltration early in his campaign, he calls this spygate. Because if the FBI was investigating whether Russians were trying to infiltrate his campaign, even for his own benefit, now he sees that as Spygate. And Spygate then calls to mind the idea, which is fiction, that there were spies, Democrat spies in the campaign planting evidence so that if he were to win, then they would be able to use this against him later. I guess, as opposed to planning evidence to prevent him from winning, which seems like it would have been more clever, but that doesn't go with the logic because the logic has to be retrofitted now to the way they see it and have named it Spy Gate or Witch Hunt. And it's interesting, he was speaking with a journalist and he, uh, you know, plainly admitted that he comes up with these terms like spy. Spygate or witch hunt and all, in order to discredit the news media, so when they say bad things about him or things that he doesn't like, um, they're less likely to be believed. But the question it all raises is: if one side is really good at, or seems to be good at, coming up with names for things, whether it's uh, you know crooked Hillary or Spygate or witch hunt, should the other side then come up with? Truthful equivalents or their sides equivalent a label to counteract the other label. It's it's uh, this is the logic of a linguist named George Lakoff who was talking about this. Gosh, you know, four election cycles ago when he was very concerned. Um, and you can you can find his books. It's Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F-F. People have been asking for me to spell the names of the people I refer to, so they can follow these trailheads. Um, he's a linguist who says that the Democrats should be using uh, framing as much as the Republicans if they want to try uh, to win. Uh, so, those who are trying to make real sense of things should they resort to those labels? I'm not sure. So, they hear Spygate and they know that's not true. It's something that's made up. So, then should they come out and say, oh, this is Liegate and keep saying Liegate, Liegate, Liegate whenever someone wants to talk about Spygate? Say, so, oh, Liegate. And even if people don't know what Liegate is, they'll hear, oh, someone's lying. There's a Liegate. Do they do that? You know, do they just say Trump liar, Trump liar, Trump liar whenever they're talking about the president? I don't know. I don't know if those of us trying to help ourselves and other people make true sense of things should resort to these propagandistic labels as a way of fighting for one uh, one side or even the side of truth there's a such an extreme black and white to the way this rhetoric is being used today that I'm loath to get involved with it. There's this sense, and I've heard a lot of even famous people like uh, um, Kanye and his crowd, they're talking about how they've taken the red pill. And now they see that everything is part of this one grand conspiracy. And on the one hand, in one strange way, it's true. The conspiracy they're talking about, even though they can't name it this, is neoliberalism, is the way that capitalism has infiltrated everything. Everything has become a market. Everything has metrics. And there's this a global structural bias towards participation in neoliberalism and the extraction of value from real people and places. But it's a much more systemic conspiracy than people whispering to each other. George Soros is not calling Hillary Clinton at night and saying, oh, let's do this or let's do that. If anything, it's actually the very white establishment capitalism that Trump's side believes that they're retrieving. So we could play word games, but I don't think our job is to go there. I feel like if we go into the space of word games, then we lose. The oversimplified side always wins in a word game war. It's the same way that, you know, a big Agra corn syrup product can appeal more quickly to the reptile brain that wants sweets than some systemic sense of organically grown, sustainably made, organismically healthy food. What do we say? Uh, uh, Eat right? Uh, Don't kill everything? That other stuff is poison? No, not like poison. Real poison. Poison maybe we can. I remember when my daughter was 18 months old and I had heard that McDonald's was actually with their logo and their advertisements, they were appealing to 18 month old children. I, uh, whenever in the car, whenever we would pass the McDonald's yellow arches, I would say to her, oh, that's the sign for poison. And I felt a little guilty doing it because it's not the sign for poison. But I thought if they're actively trying to anchor that logo in her mind as good food, yummy Ronald, then I would work on the other side to anchor it as poison. And she still hasn't gone to a McDonald's to this day. She's 13 years old. So I can see the sense in it, but it it doesn't seem like a good long-term strategy because if we're depending on language to promote the truth, we're already on shaky ground. We've moved into a a rhetorical space where we lose a lot of our grounding in reality. This language, English, right now, what you're listening to, this is all happening in a symbolic realm of words and sentences, which were themselves negotiated by people whose agendas we don't even know. I think the best we can do is acknowledge and try to Accentuate the shortfalls of this stuff. We should aim to use words as close to what is as possible rather than moving into the trickery of post hypnotic suggestion and branding and all the stuff we can do with language as an unfair player. You know, instead, Come as close to the real as you can and hope that this helps people come to see that everything is not as up for interpretation as Yanni or Laurel. There is something going on here, and it's time we get on the same page. Our guest today... Eli Pariser has been dedicated to helping people see reality for what it is and get out of what he termed the filter bubble. Um, Years ago, in 2011, he saw what was going to happen with this last election cycle if we were going to let our algorithms draw us further and further into our own uh, separate reality tunnels. And I'm honored to have him here with us today. I mean, the last real sit-down conversation we had was yeah. in some cafe in Manhattan, and you right. were, uh, told me the story of uh, how uh, Walter Lippmann was publishing these essays, basically arguing that in one way or another, what you could interpret that, that people are kind of challenged in their ability to execute democracy and participate meaningfully in an educated way, and that maybe government should have some kind of a council of experts mm-hmm. that informs politicians and government of how to act, and then a team of public relations people that convinces the population that this is what's good for you. Yeah. You know, And that goes all the way back to World War One and the Creel Commission and Woodrow Wilson running on a peace platform and then deciding to go to war. And... Uh, John Dewey, who's not the decimal Dewey, but a different (laughs) Dewey, an educator at Columbia Teachers College, started writing or publishing pieces saying, don't go this way. This is bad. Um, You know, the population can't be educated enough and informed with a good journalism and good... and." and that went back and forth with Dewey actually not even acknowledging that he was in a debate, mm-hmm. uh, or not Dewey, uh, uh, Lippmann wouldn't right. acknowledge that he's in yeah, yeah, a debate yeah. at all, and Dewey still arguing as if. But he he was aware. So they were going back and forth. But um, I don't know if it was. I think after that, after you told me about that, I've been thinking yeah. about it, thinking about it. And uh, are we just too stupid to do this? Are we too uninformed? <laughs> is the is the culture too commercial to be able to inform us adequately? And then I uh, and I told the listeners about this a few weeks ago. I had lunch with a with a former Secretary of State and mm-hmm. his people, and they said to me almost jokingly, "So Doug, how do you feel now that democracy has been proven a failure, a failed uh-huh. experiment? Oh no, yeah. So it felt almost as if it's now accepted, yeah, that democracy doesn't work because people are just like iron filings."
3: Elect trump or whatever yeah
1: yeah i mean so in the in the five years since we had that conversation how how are you f- feeling about all this do you think that we're that human beings in this society are capable of exercising our, our democratic will
3: yeah completely i mean i i i'll i'll say this all with the caveat that i despite everything am am a hopeful optimistic person and so uh, and, and there's a great, I think it's a Gramsci quote, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. So I can't tell you exactly why I'm optimistic. I just am. And then I'm going to be very, really critical and about sort of how we're going to get there. But I I do think, you know, it's the worst system except for all the others. And I think that like people, our government kind of lives up to or down to our expectations of it. And so, and that's I think what I what I heard Dewey saying, however long ago, which was, you know, that if you expect and create institutions that call out in people their citizenship and their critical thinking and their ability to think about the greater good, they'll rise to the occasion. <laughs> and if you expect them to be dumb sheep, then they'll act like dumb sheep. And um, that that's a structural. You know that that we have to pay a lot of attention to um which of those we all we all have you know sort of sheep-like tendencies and enlightened tendencies and that the structures we live in determine that so i think you know certainly right now um it's a challenging moment for democracy is a challenging moment for truth or whatever you want to call it but i don't think that means that that c- capability is gone uh, I just think like we're not doing a very good job of calling it out of each other,
1: right? Well, the system that we're using to try to be democratic, yeah, is it it shifted. I mean, this is kind of what what now I feel like we're dropping names, but this is <laughs> sort of what Adorno and the Frankfurt Group yeah. and those guys were worried about. Yeah, was that as our as culture became an industry and that industry took over everything, then there would be this kind of crossover that we would have which we did, a kind of an American Idol moment, where Mm -hmm. entertainment and democracy are anchored in young people. It's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a couple of decades later or a decade into it, we have people understanding the democratic process, the way consumers understand, you know, vote for Sprite Red or Sprite Blue to be the next, you know, flavor of this thing.
3: Yeah. I don't know whether that's a cause or an effect. And, And here's what I mean by that, which is that I guess the way I'm looking at what's going on right now is that everything or, or a lot of things come back to this kind of existential status anxiety that people have and that both the way that consumer culture is working and the way that political culture is working is a reflection of that anxiety. And the thing that's really kind of like caused me to to think the most about this recently is uh, some work by a guy named Ron Inglehart, I think, who you know, as a, as a kind of like progressive, I had always kind of had this general story in my head that was that when there's scarcity, people fight over scarce resources. And when there's abundance or there's enough resources that people don't have to worry about eating or don't have to worry about, you know, sort of their basic needs being met, that people can then move up the Maslow's hierarchy. And that's the really good, like, we're all singing Kumbaya, like everything's kind of great part of society. And Engelhardt's point, which I think we're living, is like, what if that's exactly wrong? What if scarcity forces people to work together and build institutions that they depend on? And what if once we reach a level of kind of, I'm not saying that everybody has all of their needs met, but a critical mass of people doesn't have to worry about their basic needs being met, that then you know, we are focused on these, that kind of top part of Maslow's hierarchy, which is like, what is my purpose in life? And that these identity structures and, you know, symbolic systems that we attach to, like our political tribes or like, you know, a a consumer brand become like all important because we don't have to fight to just survive anymore. And so they actually like, we still have to fight over something. We still have to fight (laughs) over something. And, and you know, whether it's race or gender or national identity, that these things are actually become more divisive and more kind of come to the surface in a moment where there isn't just like, hey, we all got to pull together, or we're all going to starve. Um, and so, you know, I-, I wonder if what's going on isn't a reflection of that as much as a reflection of kind of consumer, consumer capitalism.
1: Right. And consumer capitalism feeds off that then. Right.
3: No, exactly. Consumer capitalism offers one set of kind of like tribes and and things to affiliate with to give your life meaning. And politics offers this other kind of set. But it's this very thin, it's a different relationship to politics, which is like the transaction with a political party is, it's giving me a sense of identity and a sense of being part of something bigger than myself. But it's not necessarily like, in that citizen sense, that I'm relating to it. It's not like I'm relating to it to make something good happen in no, my country.
1: it's a more of an abstract, you know, it's, it's not even ideology, but it's like watching the soap opera of Polly, Who do I want to go to jail, Hillary yeah. or Trump? Yeah, you right. Know, and as if really either is going to make a difference to you, it doesn't put food on the table or yeah. or, or 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 water in the topsoil. It yeah. doesn't do anything. <laughs> right, and then you look back at times like... Um, you know during the depression the farmers in the dust bowl who were starting communes mm-hmm. and alternative currencies yeah. they weren't thinking is this you know is this bolshevik or is this capitalist yeah. you know they yeah. weren't they, they they weren't really involved in it on, that, on yeah, that level
3: totally and and so i mean i also think you know it's one of the challenges of just being part of a system as large as the united states is and where the government is large you know is that cause and effect become really separated and so, you know, I always sort of think about like holding a political opinion in terms of like ROI to the person who holds it, where you know, there's kind of like a value to being right and a value to what it signifies. So, if if my if if I think that my opinion really doesn't matter on climate change, then there's very little value to being right and there might be some value to what it signifies to not believe in climate change. Um, if I felt like it's actually my call, you know, whether we do something about climate change or, or or not, then that's reversed. And I think a lot of people are just feeling so alienated, so like disconnected from any sense that they really would have power, that, that kind of like what it signifies to hold opinions matters more than whether they're right or not.
1: Well, in the, in the climate change argument, the signifiers for not believing in it seem to really outweigh the ones for believing in it. Yeah, and There's a lot of the people I know who believe in it, believe in it so much that there's nothing they could do anyway. We're all going to die. It's just whether it happens in 200 right. years or 176 yeah. years or whatever. Whereas people who don't believe in it believe that, well, we can take money away from Al Gore's venture capital fund <laughs> and spend it on good red state things like coal yeah. today. Yeah and i'll have food on my table if we stop this climate change. You know, so right. there's a more immediate bounty, you know, mm-hmm. for the people who don't believe in it than than those who do.
3: Right. It reminds me of i was at a retreat once with like a pretty impressive guy who was a, a leader of a of a big national organization and we were out at night looking up it was like out in the country that we were looking up at the stars and the moon and he said like uh Just like, you know, quietly, like, isn't it so amazing that the sun's light travels all the way to all of those stars and bounces back to us? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, you know, like, they're all reflecting the sun's light wow and I, I said and i would think
1: just in case you know yeah. and it's fine most <laughs> listeners understand stars generate their own light they're like on fire well this is yeah. what I, <laughs> and like and we see them they're little light bulbs in the sky of of helium or whatever gets blown up <laughs> right the moon doesn't have its own source of light correct Yes, and the planets i guess get bounced yeah. but the stars are fire yeah yeah okay um
3: just so sitting there you could get straight. into jupiter emits a little bit of heat, but whatever um but it's the, still mostly it's we're still, seeing reflections. No, that's yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I so so I said like, no, actually those are all um, you know those are all stars. Th- yeah. Those are all like like the sun, but really far away. And and
1: he's an adult. This guy.
3: He's, he's yeah. an adult, yeah. super learned guy, not like necessarily like a name brand person that you would know, but like yeah. an impressive individual. And um, and there was a little pause, and he he said. Oh, okay. Like basically, you know, sort of didn't didn't argue about it, but it was just, and and it, it was such a it was memorable to me because like, on the one hand, like what I had said literally changed his model of what the universe was, right? Like yeah. like, like on a cosmic scale, you know, it, it reshaped what the the whole thing looked like, and on the other hand, like it reminded me like. There's so many things that just have no... Rel- like, he was never going to have any consequences for believing that stars were like planets and reflecting the sun's light. Like, there was no meaningful impact in it. He was never going to pilot an interstellar spacecraft or whatever, or, or yeah. navigate by the stars or whatever you would need to know that to do. So my point is, I think we can forget that a lot of people's relationship to both kind of facts and to um, democratic opinions is kind of like that. Like, it feels very far away. It just doesn't really super matter whether it's right or not. And I think that's one of the things that, if you do believe in democracy, and I really do, like, you have to change that relationship so that it feels like it matters to be right.
1: Right, and not just like, well, being right is not a matter of opinion. Right. That there's a thing, that there's some reality here. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. That being right is worth it to hold an opinion that might be unpleasant, like we might all drown in the rising oceans. Like, I would rather not believe that because it just seems unpleasant.
1: But the problem is the world is so complicated right now that sometimes the things we know still run counter to what is. So, like, take a... um, uh, I'm a red state guy in a yeah. coal mining district. There's coal under my feet right now. Yeah. That I can dig out. It's going to hurt a little, but I could dig it out, make some money, feed my family. Yeah. And what you're telling me is that I'm supposed to now make solar panels yeah. and get trained by Hillary Clinton's mob squad yeah. to get trained to do this thing. Yeah. To 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 be part of some company, you're you're disconnecting me from the real world value that I know to do this fantasy yeah. thing. So so there's a certain point at which the the facts from our reality, our local reality, seem to contradict with these sort of systemic abstract needs that progressives are telling us we have to pay attention to.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the challenge. I think the opportunity would be that cultural realities are feel as real as, you know, the ground under people's feet, and the danger would be that cultural realities feel as yeah. real as the ground under people's feet. And so on the one hand, I think we we are moving into a moment where people can get excited about these big abstract projects in a way that, you know, a hundred years ago would have been really hard. On the other hand, Clearly, and climate change is probably the best example or, or one of the best examples of this, like often things that are really important are really hard to make culturally intelligible.
1: Well, that's part of why you started Upworthy, right? Is to totally. take weird ideas like climate change, <laughs> big abstract cosmic concepts, and then kind of, I mean, it, this sounds horrible. And I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. So I was starting to listen to the way you say it. Sort of package them in media content that is more thrilling to people or engaging. Yeah, I mean, I or think, makes more sense.
3: Well, we were trying to do two things. One is. And you say were? I mean, are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I was scared. saying when we started it, we were. Okay. Uh, and now we are. But. But your original the, intent. The, I guess the yeah, idea it was. Um, you know, number one, a lot of. A lot of news almost feels like you're punished for consuming it, like you, like psychologically. You right, know, that, you read about that, climate
1: change and then I feel hopeless. Great, yeah, yeah. now right. play
3: with your kid. It's not a, it's not a benefit, and in fact, and it doesn't create a habit of mind of wanting to return to those topics. No, I've been it emotionally like, punished. Yeah, for, exactly.
1: It's like going to the shrink or
3: something. You right. know, who
1: wants to know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, depends on your relationship yeah. with your shrink, but yeah. uh, so so part of what we were trying to think about was how do we tell these stories in a way that it's not like it's all good and Pollyannish and you know solved, but just they give some sense of hope and human agency, like that that climate change right. is an issue that we can solve. We have all of the materials on the table to solve this problem, and right um, like stop
1: eating meat something like
3: that. Well, not, you know? not I mean, even just clean energy. I mean, there's a wealth of reasons that um, if we just get oil and coal out of the way, that clean energy doesn't even need to be, you know, it's not like we need to prop it up in order for it to like flourish across the globe. It's happening. So that's a very different kind of way into this topic than, um, you know, we're all going to die unless we do something sort of drastic and very painful seeming. So that's, so that's one piece. I think the other piece was, you know, was this question of how do we make it? I think we, we looked at a lot of news about sort of quote, unquote, important topics, and felt like they were kind of relying on the idea that people would feel obligated to read or consume this. And our feeling was, if you look at, you know, sort of the Facebook newsfeed or another place where people are consuming media, they're not obligated to consume anything or they don't approach it with a sense of obligation. And um, they'll consume, you know, a lot of the times things that they want to engage with. And so how do we make this something that people want to engage with, find rewarding to engage with? It's a good story. And get set some of the complexity and, and reality of the issue. So that's that was kind of like the what we've been trying to do with upworthy. And, um, I think, you know, sometimes, uh, it's, it's worked great. Sometimes it hasn't, but, uh, I mean, and I guess the
1: original premise was because you came up with a filter bubble before yeah. upworthy was if we're are in a filter bubble and I'm only going to be seeing drudge stories about, uh, how there's no such thing as climate change. How do we penetrate that filter bubble with some information that person might not normally be receptive to?
3: That was part of it, and and then the other piece was, I mean, in the filter bubble, I was kind of concerned about two things. One was um, polarization and people kind of losing sight of of the other tribe or the others the other side, um, and not even really knowing it was there, and how social media could exacerbate that. But the other one was just the sort of sense that to the back to the point about commercialization that. If, if entertainment content gets to compete equally with news content without any, you know, sort of um, editor saying, like, we're going to put... You know, the front page of the New York Times isn't going to be the style section, right. but it's going to be like there the was most a important whole, news of the day.
1: There was a whole section that stayed black and white much longer than the other sections in uh-huh. front of the New York Times. Yeah, right. About like government world sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Then the next section might have like food Thursday or totally. whatever. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And so if that wasn't part of how, you know, these news feeds were going to work, then how do we actually just sort of make sure that that whole public sphere of conversation doesn't slip out of view or doesn't like you know and so that was that was the other kind of question or concern that we were starting this thinking about right but but the the
1: the impasse for me though is once you're trying to make news compete with this other stuff, you kind of lost to begin with, right? You're cause now you're competing on sort of sensationalist metrics and entertainment value and it's like that was a different thing. It's like you go watch, you know, Star Wars or MASH or some, you know, your TV shows and Rhoda yeah. is one world. And then Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite yep or another there that these are, these are just because they're coming through the same tube doesn't make them at all equivalent. They're different functions.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's a fair concern. And I think, you know, I mean, it speaks to the shift in these, in the communication channels, because, you know, if you go back to 1970, you know, at 6 PM, if you wanted to consume, you know, a, a soap opera or or a sports show or whatever, like too bad, the news was on. That was all that was on. Right. And, uh, you know, that's that was just the way that it worked. And so everyone got some slice of that, whether you wanted it well, or not. Well, it was their license. And, they
1: didn't do it to make money. Right. To get an FCC license, you had to have so many hours sure. of news. So you did... The news is this social obligation. And then the, your your television brand, part of its merit was its ability to do news in a responsible way.
3: Yeah. So you shift all of a sudden to a world where there's an infinite amount of choice. I mean, this is even holding aside like an algorithm like the Facebook news feed. Should news have to compete with entertainment right. content? Which, I, I mean, I actually think you know, when you think in a sort of like Dewey ish way about sort of what kinds of institutions what, what what do we what do we need our institutions to be like in order to um, have a working democracy, right. you know, then I think both you do need institutions that get people curious and excited about about news and about the political world like i think you know it it feels technical and opaque to a lot of people and you really can't understate the number of people who consume news frequently like it's a tiny tiny percentage of the population that really like consumes a lot of news
1: is that really true because i mean maybe it was it different now than it was is that like one of these pew things that it's a declining line well when i was a kid it seemed like everyone was sitting out on their front stoops reading the paper even well, if it was
3: the post yeah people i mean people will see something drift by on facebook or on twitter but the number of people who really like read a hard news article or listen to the nightly news yeah. is just declining and declining and at the same time that there's like more news and higher quality news available to more people a lot of the time not not at a local level but at a national level than ever before so you know it's sort of I've always thought this was just like one of the fundamental fallacies about the internet, which was that the availability of something meant that more people would take advantage of it. It's like we we all, Americans, are much more able to consume foreign news, for example, than we've ever been. You can read any country's newspaper right. you know, in a second, but people are actually less informed in general about foreign news than they were in 1995. Um, mm. <laughs> and so... You know, just because it's there doesn't mean that people see it. Right. And there's also something repetitive about it. But it gets interesting. I mean, it's like anything. You know, it it's it gets interesting the more familiar you are with it and with the context. And so it, it, everything looks kind of boring and opaque from the outside. You know, you, you, you see someone on the street and you kind of make a couple snap judgments about them. And then when you really kind of start to know about their lives and the characters in their lives, like... It's much more interesting, usually, and there's something right. really weird going on or dramatic or whatever. But you have to kind of, like, get through that initial veneer. And I think the news institutions we have now and the platforms aren't very good at that or aren't, like, doing
1: that, especially. Right. Well, it takes time. Yeah. And then you're think, talking about knowing someone as a human being rather than as some character or stereotype. or Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's... It's not something that's easy to shortcut.
1: So it was funny. I was reading some of what you were saying, sort of between, uh, well, I guess really, people asking you about filter bubble after this election. Yeah. And one of the things that was funny, the piece that you said you hadn't taken into account was the only piece I had taken into account. <laughs> In other words, I didn't. I didn't think of the filter bubble as such, but I was concerned since the '90s yeah. about the feedback loop between what websites are feeding people and what they click on right that you end up with this it was sort of reading one-to-one marketing that made yeah. me think about it that yeah, oh yeah. my gosh they're gonna just keep sending it's gonna it's gonna totally. go back and forth and it's gonna speed up yeah you know so instead of just over a period of 20 years me getting catalogs more geared to my you know consumer yeah. purchases on you know in the in the junk mail now it's every day the emails and websites are gonna reconfigure based yeah. on what I did last time and and send me down a reality tunnel yeah. you know it was sort of Robert Anton wilson's consciousness narrowing yeah um but then you you said that the part the part that sort of took you by we're not surprised really but the the part that you had underestimated was the sort of the algorithmic feedback loop in the filter bubble that that it wasn't just that people were going to passively or 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 accidentally move into these Communities of like minded group think or look at media that just feeds back what they want, but that then those media sources are going to be algorithmically uh, reinforcing those bubbles as well.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, well, not algorithmically, but just that I hadn't fully kind of put together that what stories were told before they reached the filter were going to change. Like that, that, you know, uh, the demand was going to affect the supply. And so, um, mm. That that when people realize like oh I can kind of um, light the whole uh, right wing echo chamber on fire or um, you know the the vaxer community or whatever it is you know that that then there were going to be people who would say okay well let's do a lot more of that because that really seems to be working it's getting huge uptake and it's and I think that that's especially true on the right because. The structure of the network is actually different. So when you look on Facebook at who's talking to and sharing with whom, you know, sort of liberals, folks in the center, it's all kind of one big cross-conversational group. And you get over to kind of moderate Republicans, it's all kind of like broadly speaking, you know, one conversation that people part of the same, you know, part of the same conversation. Then you have this almost like completely it's not just an epistemically closed network sort of from a media standpoint or from a truth standpoint. It's almost literally like a closed network in the sense that um, th- there are a group of people on the right who just really are not friends with, connected to people on the center or on the left. And so I think part of what happened in this election was that a whole bunch of entrepreneurs for a whole bunch of different reasons, whether it's you know Steve Bannon or it's some Macedonian teenager, realized like, that is a very powerful dynamic to to build something for. I you know, mean, um, a,
1: a self reinforcing high velocity network.
3: Yeah, and and that um, you could build something very quickly that both was profitable and was culturally relevant in a way that we hadn't really seen before. And so, I guess the piece I, I just hadn't really sort of played out for myself how the whole media landscape was going to reconfigure itself around what these algorithms were um, pushing through to particular groups of people.
1: Right. Because then everyone ends up talking about those,
3: those stories.
1: Yeah. I mean, so even if the left
3: was disconnected on a network level, they're still retweeting.
1: Yeah. What's happening over
3: there. Right. And, and, but I do think I mean I think there was a filter bubble for the left as well, which was that I mean a lot of the right wing media actually was not was not digital. It was Fox. It was talk talk radio. Right. There was a whole you know. Sort well, of that's spectrum. been going on
1: for twenty. They've been building that for twenty thirty totally. years. Right? Yeah. Since Carter.
3: Yeah, and so and on the left, actually, you know, you have the kind of like hyper Twitter users and hyper Facebook users are mostly you know sort of younger more likely to be urban more likely to be female all of these things you know tend to, to put you on the left and so i do think you know it was easy to imagine that trump was not as appealing as he was to that group of people because right. they were all kind of like posting to each other articles about how heinous the access hollywood tape was which it was but There wasn't anyone who was sort of like, I don't give a about that, actually, you know, in in their network. You know what I mean? So the election kind of came as a shock, I think, partly because of those dynamics.
1: Right. And, you know, and I used to get in trouble on this show for it, but uh, I would spend my monologues trying to explain how Trump feels about something Uh or what he actually means. Yeah. And Uh from his perspective, you know, uh in a non-patronizing way. Right. You know, like I just did before about the coal miner who's on his land and why do I have to go do this? And people get so mad as if, you know, you're even giving the time of day. You even, you know, but you have to. I mean, if 30% of the country is is in a particular story, you can just call them crazy X-Files programmed.
3: Totally. No, and I think that's the really, that's a very challenging a challenging but necessary piece of the equation right now is how to figure out, like, I think it is the case that there's a group of people on the right who have a different relationship to not just media, but, like, truth-finding than people on the left do. You know, that that it's a relationship where, for example, you know, the idea, I think, I think people on the left, like, like me tend to assume that impartiality and hearing from a bunch of different voices is sort of an intrinsically good way to find what's true. And I think there's a group of people, you know, if you look at the polling who just don't believe that so much, like they don't, they don't see that as an inherent virtue and they feel more like there is a clear black and white moral truth in the, in the world and gravitate to media sources that reinforce that sense. And that, and so how you, I often find that kind of some of the solutions to this problem look to me a lot. Like, I mean, the classic example is like fact checking where, you know, there were all these kind of fact checking sites that popped up after the election. And someone did an analysis of like, okay, well who's the audience for the kind of like most clearly factually false fake news. And then who's the audience for the fact-checking? And it was like a complete mismatch. Like, the people who want to read fact-checking websites are highly educated, urban, you know, liberals. Right. And the group that was most susceptible to the, like, false fake news tended to be kind of conservative, non-college-educated folks on the right. And so if you don't – if you're not able to kind of have empathy, not just – kind of an emotional empathy, but like a philosophical empathy of like, what if I, what if I actually believed something different about where truth came from, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it's very hard to actually like kind of solve the the problem.
1: Right. Well for us, I mean, you know, truth seems to come sort of more from science and observation and, you know, sociology and people out in the world looking at stuff now without even being disparaging about it. If, if, if 30% or so of Americans believe that the end of times is coming in their lifetime. Yeah. And the Messiah is coming back and they're going to see it. And if Pence even, the vice president of our country, in case people yeah. don't know, if he not only believes that but, but believes that part of his role is to bring on this apocalypse, you know, to bring on the the that moment, then truth the facts on the ground are immaterial to the facts we can create through our belief systems and actions in other words if they if they really believe that they're creating reality i mean yeah. what the most psychedelic progressives of the early you know cyber era believed <laughs> yeah. too, right yeah um you know the thinking makes it so they're buying the they they're reading the secret along with you know yeah al along with the the new testament then there's no amount of fact checking reality testing that matters okay fine, reality testing is good for you marxist people who are stuck in history in the past and want to limit the human species to its current you know yeah b s state
3: yeah, so I think i mean again, going back to like The Ron Englehart stuff, because I think that's part of the way out. Like, I think the need to hold these opinions so strongly is a psychological one. From all sides, you mean? Yeah, that comes from not having other areas where we find a sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. And... So well, everyone's kind of lonely and... Yeah, the ones that like,
1: we used to have don't work. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, no dad in his house is Archie Bunker anymore. Yeah, He's right. struggling. To, Who's in charge? <laughs> what am I doing? I got to make all the money, but I got to be equal partner. And yeah. uh, they're all confused. Yeah. You know, kids are confused. Am I supposed to be the kid or the grown up? And am <laughs> I a Florida teenager, you know, protesting gun control? Yeah. Or am I a stoner? And Yeah. We're, we're all lost that way.
3: Yeah. And so I think... If, if if there wasn't so much um, staked on these political identities and people had more of a sense of security in their own kind of status in society coming from less political ones, organizations they belong to or whatever, then because the opinions themselves are rarely that directly meaningful to the people who hold them, in other words, because those opinions are more about saying something than making a decision for everyone, then I think there's actually, you, you open up some space where people can kind of relax and look at, well, what actually is best for everyone? But I think you have to kind of de-escalate in a way, you know, the sense that kind of partisan identity is is the crux or is the central identity of this moment in order to like right. be able to do that. Yeah,
1: but tell that to the parties. I yeah. mean, I tried that with... Um, I got in this conversation with... Um, oh, what the heck? She runs this thing called a Center for American Progress. Yeah, Neera Tandon. Yeah, this yeah. big conversation with Neera Tandon about memetics and stuff. Uh-huh. And they were interested in having me do... I don't know what you would call it. Negative memetic analysis of uh-huh. Trump. Uh huh. Because th- right. the main thing they want to do to get more Democrats elected into office is to uh, up Trump's negatives, yeah. as they put it. Uh-huh. And it seemed so senseless yeah. to me to go, because that's just going further into this insane game. Yeah. You know, And I was saying, well, what if instead of doing that, we took a long view and uh-huh. said, why don't we just do things in red states that get human beings involved in social reciprocity and... You know, mutual aid, yeah. favor banks. Uh, just show them how it works. Don't tell them it's leftist. Don't tell them it's socialism. Just you know, because it's not. No, that's it's exactly just, right. Yeah, just do that, and then the candidates who most reflect the values that these people are enacting will become natural favorites in those communities. Mm-hmm. And they were just so so against that. That's mm-hmm. so long term. We've got midterms coming up in just two years. The way we're going to get them is by making everybody hate Trump and know you know what a flanderer he is, and. Well, I totally agree with you because
3: yeah. the, you know, I was actually listening to a big uh, to a CEO of a big company talk about this, and she was saying like, and and it's been my experience too that when you're running a company, you're kind of in a in a quiet period, or no one's totally sure where you're headed. That's when all the internal drama like breaks out, mm-hmm. and as soon as you've got like either you know like we're going to go beat our competitor, or we've got this amazing moonshot thing that we're going to build. That stuff quiets down and people, you know, get focused on what they're doing together and they work together. well. And I think like, that's true in the country too. There's a real way in which like, what is the project that we're all doing together in America? What's the place that we're going? Like, I feel like, Certainly liberals don't have a strong answer to that. I don't think Republicans have a coherent one, although they have a clearer answer to it, which is like, let's go back to nineteen fifties, white America. You know, but that sense of like, let's just all do something valuable and good together. Let's let's build rebuild American infrastructure. Like every city in the country needs to fix some bridges. Let's build some bridges <laughs> together. And like I think that would do more to de-escalate and build a sense of kind of like stability, security, purpose than like even just like getting people down to sitting down to talk to each other or whatever. Like, let's just do something. But
1: we decide we want to build a bridge. We end up now in this debate between the sort of Koch brother people who say, okay, the private sector should build these bridges and get to charge fees for people to cross them and all that. And the other side says, no, no, it's a municipal You know, we should do municipal bonds to do bridges, but that's going to put your city in more debt.
3: Yeah. And... No, but maybe, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think, I don't even think we're there yet. Like, I don't think we have the big project that is the dream that then we can fight about how to execute.
1: (laughs) Well, the big project's going to be, you know, climate change when it really starts raining... You know, that, poop on
3: us sure yeah that's one that, that's one it's just it happens to be a hard one to start with clean energy is probably like not a bad way into it though like let's get America you know energy independent quote unquote is is not a bad big project for us all to be rallying well, to energy
1: independence depends on digging up more coal out of the ground <laughs> and uh, right.
3: fears of coal have been yep. vastly overstated by Al Gore's
1: conspiratorial <laughs> left wing media Chinese hoax
3: yep yeah, well, t- tell that to China. Um, I know who's really leading the way. Yeah, I mean, totally. there are our hope. I mean, yeah, if they weren't a dictatorship, I would
1: be, you yeah. know, enjoy them a lot more.
3: yeah, no, that's I mean, in in this next couple of decades, you know, back to your person, your Secretary of State, who said, you know, democracy what, is a failed democracy experiment. is a failed experiment. Like, that's very much. It's an open question right now, and certainly other countries like China and like. Singapore and you could kind of go down this list of sort of like uh, uh, countries that are starting to have kind of cultural influence among the political elite as like, hey, maybe it is better just to tell people what to do and kind of expect them to be, you know, sort of dumb consumers. And I feel like that's an urgent task right now. It's like, if if we believe in democracy, and I do, for a whole host of reasons you know both in terms of outcomes and in terms of kind of human dignity like then we got to kind of put up and and demonstrate it pretty soon because i think like we're losing the the public relations war on that one (laughs) right it really it feels like we are i mean so upworthy your current
1: project has does it have like investors you have to please on some level
3: it does. I mean, we we're lucky enough to have very mission aligned, long term thinking investors. Um, but it's a for profit company, and and we, we do did that. quarterly reports
1: and number things. We do number things yeah. for sure. <laughs>
3: lots of lots of number things. You know, I think. Uh, but we've been lucky enough not to kind of have to do very short sighted, dumb things just to satisfy you know the the stock market right. and. So we do dumb things for other reasons, but not for that one. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 uh, it's been you know that I think I do believe that there that there uh, are f- ways to build businesses that avoid many of the pitfalls of kind of like capitalism run amok, um, right?
1: Just sort of more Kickstarter meetup, patient investors not looking for a hundred x unicorn return, and
3: yeah, yeah, and I think you know, when we think about who's going to, you know, the kinds of institutions we need, either if it's media or if it's platforms or whatever it is, I think my, my guess is that it's going to be a mix of like things that are nonprofits and things that are kind of low profit, but for profit and things that are profitable companies. And that each of those groups will serve some really important needs.
1: So the, what's, what's the, the user, the main User scenario
3: with Upworthy and and how does that make money? Um, so the main user scenario, I don't know what a user uh, like you're on I mean, Facebook. and like you, people people come across, you know, a, a friend of theirs posted something that we wrote or a video we made, and um, they watch it and and they can um,
1: watch it live inside Facebook without. They can leaving. watch it
3: inside Facebook. Um, they can come to our website um, and then we have you know brand uh, corporate partners essentially that um we're selective about but that we work with to when they're doing something that we sort of have vetted and feel like it's a good social cause or program then we'll do stuff with them and that content goes out you know sort of marked as sponsored but we try to make it kind of good enough and interesting enough and clear enough that people want to know like oh that's cool that unilever actually like cares about climate change like so it's, it's kind of like
1: it's almost the the sort of the stuff that vice does sometimes where ge will go in and do a contract with them to do 10 episodes of you know going green with ge yeah and there's some real content in it and maybe a little bit of here's why our company is good at trying to do it and
3: yeah yeah no i mean it, it's uh, that's that's um the way that a lot of media companies are right. making money. I mean, money it's not as
1: this. bad as a Dodge Ram, Martin Luther King commercial. <laughs> you know?
3: No, I mean, we and actually, you know, we have increasingly, like, on the one hand, all of these companies are kind of being forced by these same kind of, like, partisan existential dynamics to choose sides. Right. On the other hand, as we've all seen from Dodge and from Pepsi and you could go on, like, a lot of them have done it really badly. And so part of our, like, you know, part of what we work with brands about is like, how do you not do it sort of disingenuously ripping off a hero, you know, inauthentically and have everybody. hate? Right. Him? I mean, um, and the
1: left is so much harder on people than the right. So it's like not to defend them, but, you know, yeah. Pepsi tries to say, OK, we're on the Me Too side of things. You yeah. know, we're on the 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 women's march and all uh, that. Yeah. And they do a misguided commercial and they get so hammered. I mean, I could see being the head of Pepsi and saying, screw the left, you know, let's just go to the right, you know, get some good customers.
3: They, they can't because, um, you know, millennials are a huge group of consumers and they're very, you know, they have this set of values. They're, They're not all sort of Democrats, but they have a set of values that are very much about, you know, kind of, um, being racially diverse and, different kind of sensibility about gender and all of this stuff. So, you know, they, they can't say screw that because it's a huge chunk of who's going to be buying things. Um, right. and that's one of the things that I feel like I, I do feel hopeful about is that, um, a lot of the political dynamics that we're seeing and a lot of the kind of like structural dynamics around de- democracy really frankly have to do with like the older part of the population. <laughs> and, You know, your average Fox News viewer is like 70. It's like it's a a very, you know, those channels are very powerful, but they're speaking to a a very aging part of the country. right? And so, you know, I don't think we really know what it looks like when kind of millennials and then sort of the Parkland generation, um, you know, are actually kind of politically empowered. But I think it's going to feel very different from how it feels now.
1: And I guess you're hoping that Upworthy is kind of part of what, you know, helps them be a little bit, I mean, it's not just for red state people to see blue things. It's also for blue state people to understand red things, right?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I think our best our best content, and it's, it's cool because we actually, our audience is pretty, um, you know, is, is a, is a pretty big range politically and we've really tried not to be a sort of strident partisan site. Like we try to be sort of like the way move on might've been the the way (laughs) move on might've been. Uh, uh, and that was probably a reaction for me, you know, sort of like, I, I I love a lot of the work that we did at move on, but there was a piece of it that I felt always uncomfortable about that was, that was that kind of like stridency that, um, yeah. So, so the question was like, is there a way to kind of, um, build build that sense of cross-group empathy and and actually going back to your initial question about democracy like i often think we think about democracy as it's a group of citizens making judgments about sort of laws or political ideas together but but the other kind of but empathy actually is kind of a critical prerequisite for democracy because If you can't imagine what it's like to be someone very different from you, then it's impossible to make laws that are good for everyone. Because how do you know what is good for everyone if you don't have a sense of And so, you know, I think that emotional piece of kind of cross-group understanding is just as important as the intellectual or rational piece of how do you get people actually dialed into the realities of climate change or whatever it is.
1: Right. I think it's important for people to see, OK, this is who you're calling deplorable. Mm-hmm. This is what, you know, I mean, it's funny and whatever, but to sort of pierce these
3: uh, boundaries between between sides in this thing. Like there's a way to be empathetic. You know, I, I'm not someone who sort of feels like all Trump voters are racist or um, there's no point in dialogue or no point in in cross-communication, but there also has to be some reckoning with, like, it does appear that racial resentment was a really strong force in the election, and how do you address that across... How do you talk about that honestly and openly?
1: It's tricky, but it is... These are important conversations to have, And yeah. but they're really hard to, uh, to have even in the safest of places.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I think it, it starts with you know, getting to, I mean, the the podcast is called Team Human. And I think like, if you get beyond those labels, and beyond even the question of, is this person on the left or the right or a sexist or a racist or whatever, and try to be curious about just who what's going on with that? Who are they? Like, people are just weird, man. And like, the weirdness is the best thing that we have going for us, actually. Like the that's, the only thing we have going for us is that like one of the main points of this whole show, people are quirky and weird and
1: yeah, that's what distinguishes us from the algorithms that are competing for our reality right now.
3: Right. And so, and so I guess I feel like when I think about actually, you know, our, our most popular Upworthy video of all time, you know, partly it sounds like classic Upworthy video where it's the guy who is in foster care who developed this kind of, Mm -hmm. um, nonprofit to help other kids who were in foster care. But it just turns out to be like a way weirder story than that sounds like. Like it just keeps on right. dropping in these elements where like he also adopted these kids, cross racially, and he he lives on this weird farm that he. It's just like it kind of like isn't what you're expecting. Right. Well, because it goes the opposite be, direction
1: from like a TED talk or something, y- which becomes just a generic. Yeah. Let's solve it. Yeah. You know, into yeah. just increasing layers of just strangeness. Yeah.
3: And I and I feel like if we could bring back that texture and strangeness to the way that we're talking with each other yeah that would probably be a good thing like that's one of the worst things about sort of social media that it ends up getting kind of reduced down very quickly i just don't know that the kind of thinking that got us here will get us out and so Mm. um how do we be really curious about who we're in a country with, <laughs> uh, right?
1: And how oh, do we embrace okay. not just their the, the ambiguity of who we're with, but the ambiguity in ourselves? Yeah, the, the
3: totally just how yeah. weird
1: and conflicted we all are all yeah, the time.
3: Exactly. Yep, yeah. Well, thanks for being on Team Human. Thank you for having me on. This so, how can great. people upworthy? Humans. Should they just go
1: to upworthy.com they Is that the smartest thing? They
3: can find us on Facebook. You probably already. We don't go. We're not even on Facebook oh. with Team Human, I, yeah. and everyone's saying I have to be, yeah. but.
1: Can't someone else just just put my link on their thing? I don't want to <laughs> yeah, be on there. Yeah, it's yeah. horrible. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, um, so you can go to Upworthy.com and, and have all the good
3: experiences without okay. having to tell Facebook which ones you've clicked on. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> you can have an unmediated version of of our media site. Do you have algorithms um, that are looking at what I do and trying to feed me more of me myself? Yeah. No. Oh, good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for thank you. For doing this. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today has been Eli Pariser, founder of Upworthy.com. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email Stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's Stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This show is, after all, produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolomé. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.